Okay, so we're officially starting our next series of studies around the book of 1 Samuel uh, this morning. And because we're doing that, it is a totally reasonable thing to wonder why we read from Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 through 7. Um, and so I'm going to now explain myself, and this is how I'm going to go about it. Um, if you were to ask me if I've ever been to Phoenix, my answer would be yes. In fact, I've been to Phoenix maybe two or three times. However, all I've ever actually seen of Phoenix is the airport. And because all I've ever seen is the airport, well, I can actually say I've been to Phoenix. I really don't know that much about Phoenix at all. The landscape of the city uh, means nothing to me. The general culture of the city, everything that is so important in making Phoenix, Phoenix, I know very little about because I've only seen a little of the city, just the airport. And uh, there's a sense in which uh, we can visit different parts of the, of the Bible, much like I visited the city of Phoenix. Um, we, we can be in one part of the Scriptures, we can even study it to a certain degree, but we can give attention to that uh, piece of the whole, that small part, and miss out on the surrounding landscape that makes the truth of a particular section, a book like 1 Samuel, for example, so significant. If we just drop in and visit part of the Bible without at least a reminder from time to time how that small part fits in the landscape of redemptive history as a whole, fits in that biblical narrative as a whole, we ultimately can come away with a smaller understanding of the truth of that particular part than we otherwise would. It's like, it's like visiting a small part of a city like the airport and, and missing out on really knowing what that city is like simply because we don't have all the, all the information about, about what really makes the place tick. And so as I've been thinking about starting this series in 1 Samuel, I thought we'd start with what I will call a really long introduction to 1 Samuel. And we're going to call it that because what we're going to do is we're going to take this week and then we're also going to take the next two weeks to do a 30,000 foot flyover of the biblical geography leading up to 1 Samuel. So, so we're, going to, we're going to set Samuel in its wider context of God's work in the story of his uh, redemptive revelation leading up to all the events that we'll study uh, when we ultimately land in 1 Samuel chapter 1. So this week what we're going to do is we're going to think about creation to Abraham. That's what we're going to focus on. So that takes us from Genesis chapter 1 to Genesis 12, which we read today. And then next week, we're going to think about Abraham to Egypt. And then from that week, we're going to think about um, the exodus from Egypt to the people's entrance and lives in the promised land, in the land of Canaan, which is ultimately uh, where the narrative of Samuel will pick up. Uh, so we're going to do this narrative 30,000-foot flyover, uh, and, and the reason for that is just so that we can, we can understand the book of 1 Samuel with a greater depth than we would otherwise, because we get there and we have the surrounding landscape in mind, so, so that's there for us. But, but another good reason for doing this is, is that especially after we've had our noses down deep in the, in the theological uh, realities of the book of Hebrews and then the ethical exhortations, I mean, we've been looking even at, at one or two verses at, at a time, after having a season like that in our study, it's nice to come up like this and just reorient ourselves with God's work in redemptive history. And, and, and we don't do this just because it will leave us with a better framework for our, for our next study, which of course it will do that, but ultimately we do this so that we're reminded of the unique aspect of worship that ultimately all of the scriptures, not least of all the Old Testament scriptures, compel us forward in. 
And there's, and there's a big reason for that um, compulsion to worship that's reflected through a study even of the Old Testament texts themselves. And that is that when we study the Old Testament scriptures in all its parts and pieces, when we, when we get a landscape view of what's going on in the Old Testament, we see that all of this truth brought together is driving in one primary direction. And that direction is toward the person and work of Jesus Christ. In fact, we remember um, from, from uh, time to time, we bring this to mind, but there was that interaction Jesus had with, with the religious leaders that John records for us in his gospel in John chapter 5. And so there, the religious leaders at, at that point in John, they're committed to killing Jesus. We were just told that earlier in the chapter in John 5. Uh, Jesus is claimed to be one with God the Father. And so because of that claim to deity, the religious leaders, they don't believe him. They don't trust in him, that he's, he's the one who's come from God. Instead, they want to kill him. They refuse to believe that Jesus is who he says he is. And in the course of their conversation, Jesus says this to them. He tells them, you pour over the scriptures, which of course we know these leaders were extraordinary students of the Bible, of the Old Testament scriptures. He says, you pour over the scriptures because you think that you have eternal life in them. But it's the scriptures, Jesus says, that testify to me. You pour over the scriptures because you think that you have eternal life in them, and yet they testify about me. So, so Jesus is telling us that to really study the Scriptures properly is to end with an anticipation, with a recognition, with a, with a hope secured in the person and work of Jesus Himself. The point of the Bible is not the Bible. The point of the Bible is Jesus. And so when we come to a section like this, which of course is, 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 is no surprise to us, when we come to study a section like this, that's where we want our attention to be directed. And of course, this is no surprise to us because we have just been in the book of Hebrews. And what has the preacher of Hebrews been on about the whole time? Well, he's been on about the fact that all those sacrifices, for example, that we read about in Leviticus, what are all those sacrifices? Why is Leviticus there? Well, Leviticus is ultimately there to show us we need better sacrifices and we need a better priest. We need some, somebody who's going to come and actually fix this situation that all our sacrifice and all our priests can't fix. What's the book of Leviticus really about, according to the writer of Hebrews? The book of Leviticus is a book about Jesus. So, so we're, we're prepared for this as we come to our Old Testament scriptures, just recognizing that the, 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 the way the Bible reveals its own point is to direct our attention to the high supremacy of Christ and what he's accomplishing. So, so, so another advantage of our landscape tour of these next few weeks leading up to 1 Samuel, um, and of course we'll see this a whole bunch in 1 Samuel itself, but, but a huge advantage for us is we can just be drawn out in worship as we see much of Jesus. The, the anticipation of His coming will feel the weight of that in this narrative. The, the promise of Jesus' is coming, the, the great and ultimately desperate need we have for Jesus to come, our expectation of what Jesus will do when He does come, it's all richly filled out in our Old Testament studies. Which is why we, we don't just say that it takes a whole Bible to make a whole Christian, but we also say it takes a whole Bible to make a whole Christian because it takes a whole Bible to reveal the whole Christ. We need this book if we're going to see Jesus for who He really is which at the end of the day is the glory of our task of, of, of study, 
We will, we desire, we pray for help to see Jesus in this. This is, this is what we want from our text today, which means things will be a little bit different than normal even as we try to grasp the narratival flow of the historical account that's given to us in this. Instead of, instead of seeing Christ and then thinking about particular ethical implications of that, for example, like we have at the end of Hebrews, instead of that, we're just going to be carried along by the narrative here and see how that anticipation is building as we're looking forward to this one who will come. When will he come? Who is he going to be? This anticipation that's there leading up to Christ. So, I'm excited about this. I hope you're excited about this, um, but I'm excited about it, and, um, and, and, and more than anything, simply because of the amazing pinnacles of truth we reach, not, not least of all in Genesis 1 to 12. This is an amazing section of our Bibles that really is so necessary to have plain in our minds if any of the rest of the Scriptures are going to make sense. We need Genesis 1 to 12 if any of the rest of it is going to make any sense at all. So, that's what we're going to fly over today. Um, you can follow along as we go. We're going to kind of click the chapters off, obviously, at a decent pace. Um, but if you want to page along as we go, that, that's good. Um, and, and what I'm doing here partially, too, is I'm, I'm doing penance for all those Sunday sermons that I only preached one verse. Now we're going to do 12 chapters in one sermon um, and be done by lunch. So this is, we're going to, we're going to make it. Um, so with all that in mind, we know where we need to begin, don't we? Genesis 1 verse 1. What is Genesis 1 1? Everybody knows it. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The scriptures don't start with an argument for God. The scriptures don't start uh, with a, with a, by, by easing us into the notion that there may be a God. The scriptures don't start by asking us to consider the possibility of God. The scriptures simply begin with this grand and majestic truth that before all time and all space and all measurable reality existed, God was. God was. And with that, everything that has come into existence has come into existence by His will and His action. This, this means that, that we don't live in a world that is a secular reality existing only on this horizontal plane of, of time, space, material history. But instead what this means is we live in a sacred world that exists in time, space, history because of the transcendent truth that there is one who is outside and above and made life happen. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Already we have tones of John's gospel uh, introducing Jesus ringing in our, in our ears, don't we? All things were made through Him, and without Him nothing was made that's been made already. These things are starting to ring out. Right? And, and as Genesis 1 unfolds, the glory of God's creative design is revealed. So, so when the world was made, it was first chaos. There's that rhyme there in Genesis 1. We studied this a long time ago, maybe you remember. But in Genesis 1 in Hebrew, there's that rhyme, which is oftentimes translated as formless and void. But, but, but the rhyme in Hebrew is tohu vavohu. The, the, the rhyme is used in other places in the Hebrew Scriptures to speak of what scholars refer to as a frightening disorganization that is antithetical to life. Tohu vavohu. Right? In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and the earth was... Tohu vavohu. It was uninhabitable. Even more, it was a kind of terrifying chaos. In fact, the prophet Jeremiah uses the same rhyme to speak of the horror of the exile later in Israel's history. Tohu vavohu is chaos. And with that, tohu vavohu in Genesis 1, we also read that darkness was over the face of the deep. 
So so we think of that rolling ocean in in complete and total overwhelming power and at the same time in absolute, we don't even have categories for it. Maybe we've been out in the mountains enough at night to to have some kind of inclination, but but even then, that, that ocean there rolling in its overwhelming power and absolute primordial blackness. No light. Darkness was over the face of the deep. And then we read the Spirit of God was over the face of the waters. And into this otherwise uninhabitable chaos and darkness, what happens but God speaks. And God says, let there be light, and there was light, and God saw that the light was good. Which reminds us that light and darkness, they're God's light and darkness. God doesn't even make the sun and the moon and the stars until day four, but day one there's light because He speaks. And by God's word, the darkness of chaos is dispelled. Again, John's gospel introduction to Christ is ringing in our ears. The true light which gives light to everyone was coming into the world. So in Genesis 1, God says, let there be light. And there was light and it was evening and it was morning the first day. And the great account of creation continues from there. Each day, God moves the created order along toward life. That The waters above and below were separated and land was separated from the seas. And it was evening and it was morning the second day. And then vegetation is spoken into existence. God saw that it was good, we read. And it was evening and it was morning the third day. The sun and the moon and the stars, they were hung in the sky. God saw that it was good. And it was evening and it was morning the fourth day. And then the creatures of the sea are made on the fifth day. The birds of the air are created. And we read again, God saw that it was good. And then day six comes. And God creates the beasts of the earth and livestock on day six. And then also on the sixth day we're told that God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. And God created man in his own image. In the image of God he created him, male and female he created them. And on the sixth day he not only created humanity, but he blessed and commissioned humanity. As God's image bearers, He's commissioned them to be fruitful and multiply and have dominion over His created order. The man and the woman were placed as as vice regents caring for this world that God made. And God looks over His whole creation at the end of the sixth day and He saw that it was very good. Evening and morning the sixth day. And then on the seventh day we're told God rested. Interestingly, on the seventh day, uh, things aren't like the other days, and that while God rested, we're not told that there was evening and there was morning. We're not told that there's an end to God's rest, which is just one of of so many glimmers pointing us forward in the creation account. As the scriptures unfold, we start to discover that that God's rest hasn't ended. Even in Hebrews itself, what are we called to do? Uh, But we're called to enter the rest of God through Jesus Christ. God rested on the seventh day. He rested on the Sabbath day. And there remains an eternal Sabbath for those who rest in the finished work of Christ. And there's a glimmer of that here on day seven of creation as we reach the climax of God's creative activity and He enters His everlasting rest. It's open to us. And we, and we hear the Bible whisper the questions to us here even from the beginning. We're starting to hear that question because we always remember nobody has ever read the first two chapters of Genesis without being on the other side of Genesis 3 and the fall into sin. And so we come to Genesis 1 and an account like that and we hear the Bible whisper to us, have we entered that rest? Do we know anything about this rest of God that's unending? There's something there. And so from Genesis uh, really 2 verse 4 where that creation account uh, comes to a conclusion, things zoom in a bit as we keep going through Genesis 2. Because in Genesis 2, we're given more details about God's creation of mankind and His blessing and His commissioning of mankind. 
So we're, co- we're told there that God made Adam, uh, which is the Hebrew word for man, Adam. Uh, God made Adam from the dust and breathed life into him. And what did God give to the man from the dust? Well, God gave the man from the dust a beautiful garden to work and keep. You see, see, even before sin ever entered the human experience, the God who created is the God of extravagant grace. He's the God of unmerited favor. Adam didn't have to prove himself outside the paradise of Eden for 20 or 200 years before he was able to enter. All Adam brought to the table was being created from the dust of the ground. And what does God give to the man from the dust of the ground? Well, he gives him paradise. From the very beginning of, of, of the created order, the God of creation and His revelation of Himself to mankind. From the very beginning, God has revealed Himself as the God who gives undeserved gifts. The man from the dirt gets the paradise of the garden. This is how God is. This is who God is. The God of unmerited favor. And we go on to read that God also gave the man a helper suitable for him. God created a woman which was a gift Adam was apparently much more excited about than the mere gift of paradise because he sings a song about the woman in Genesis 2.23. He didn't sing a song about his garden. And so from there, God joins them together, the man and the woman, in that first marriage ceremony, reminding us that marriage isn't, first of all, a human social construct. Marriage is a divine institution. And the man and the woman, they become one flesh, It's a picture of that that loving, unbreakable bond that ultimately reflects Jesus' own love for us and our commitment to Him like Paul speaks about in Ephesians. And the woman and the man were were to care for the paradise of Eden that that the Lord had placed them in. And they were to flourish in that paradise garden, not through the indulgence of their desires. When we think paradise, we may think just the indulgence of all the things I want, but, but they were to flourish in that paradise garden, not through the indulgence of their own desires, but they were to flourish in that garden through obedience. God says, you may surely eat of every tree in the garden, but the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. So life and purpose and happiness and most of all, unbroken communion with God was there for the man and the woman as they lived in that that life-giving obedience to God in paradise. But death was also there should they choose to go against the God of life. And that dark and evil day of temptation came, as we know. The evil one, Satan, uh, the, the accuser and destroyer of all good, he's bent on the ruination of God's good created order. The evil one, he entered the garden in the form of a serpent. And he tempted the woman. He tempted the woman through words of of deception that still ring uh, in all their chilling treachery down through the corridors of history. He tempted the woman with the question that is at the root of every temptation to sin ever. Did God really say? Did God really say? That's always the root. That's always the center of every temptation. Did God really say things should be this way? Did God really say you can't eat or touch the fruit of that one particular tree? God just doesn't want you to be wise like Him. So the serpent questions the good, creative, life-giving Word of God. And Eve, she succumbs to it. All through Genesis 1, God, who is the creator and master of the universe, we read how He He sees and He says when things are good. Do you remember that refrain all through chapter 1? And God saw that it was good. If, If there's going to be life, The divine creator is the only ultimate approver. God is the God who sees and defines good. But Eve, she decides that she would like her own crown. So she gives in to the serpent's temptation and we read that she saw the forbidden tree was good. 
You see, she took that authoritative approval of good for herself instead of submitting to God. Genesis 3, verse 6, when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of the fruit and ate and she gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate. Instead of Adam exercising himself and, and leading not just his family but leading humanity in holy submission to God as he'd been called to do, instead he was passive and followed down the disastrous path of violating the one who'd given him life and paradise and everything. And, and at that point, it seems if we're just reading along in the story for the first time, at that point it seems like the story's over before it's hardly begun. The man and the woman, what have they just done? Well, they've just violated the one who speaks so powerfully that mountains rise and the ocean stops where it's been told to stop. They've just violated this one with so much power and purpose and good. This must be the end for them. How could anything be okay? The man and the woman, they'd eaten the fruit and, and immediately they felt shame in their nakedness. They sought to cover themselves and hide. It must be over for us now. Surely that's what they were thinking. And we can feel like that on the other side of sin. We know that sentiment, don't we? We go down these paths uh, that begin with asking that question in our minds. It just starts to percolate. Did God really say? Did God really say? And we give in. We say, actually, I'd like to go this way over here because that way is not something I want to. I don't want to walk in the good way of God. I'd like to walk in this indulgence that's being presented to me. And we walk in it. And at the other side of that, how do we feel? Oh, it's, it's, it's worse for me than ever before. I'm done. How could I have been so foolish? It's hopeless. I'm lost. I violated things so deeply. There's no way life can be left for me now. We can feel that way on the other side of sin. It's all over. But of course, it's not all over. It's not over for the man and the woman, and it's not over for us. Because from the very beginning, how have we been introduced to the God who created the heavens and the earth? How have we been introduced to Him? Well, we've been introduced to Him as the one who brings life into Tohu Vavohu. He's the one who speaks into darkness, and what would otherwise be rolling waves of primordial terror into that he speaks, and light and life comes. Which is exactly what happens. God comes to the man and the woman. The, the, the God of, of transcendent glory who speaks and the entirety of the cosmos is created. He comes to this man and the woman who have just violated him. God in his glory coming near to them in their shame and disgrace. What amazing grace he extends to them as he comes to them. And he calls to them. Which just reminds us we can never think that, that, that we can first find God in our sin. Where are we in our sin? We're lost in our sin. We're quivering. We're shaking. We're ashamed. We're languishing in our condition. We are not finders of God. We're too far gone. He comes to us. So God comes to the man and the woman and He speaks to them. And He speaks to them about their sin. They, they try to blame shift, but, but responsibility for sin can never be shifted. Sin condemns. And remember, after all, God is the one who sees. So he comes to them and he questions them and God speaks about the judgment that will now come upon them because of their sin. Pain for the woman, discord in marriage, frustrating work for the man, exile from the paradise of God, and ultimately death. From dust you came, to dust you will return. The judgment for sin is bondage to death. And not just for the man and the woman, but for the whole human race. Through Adam we all die, Paul tells us. By Adam's original sin and by our committed and ongoing sin, God is defied and, and just judgment is handed down. And that judgment is death, a sentence that has affected uh, the totality of humanity. We are under the judgment of sin. 
And then God at that time, as he speaks to the man and the woman, he also speaks to the serpent. He curses the serpent, actually back down to crawl on the dust of the ground. It's a death sentence for Satan too. But it's not all over because the man and the woman uh, are also given this promise. The Lord tells them in Genesis 3 that, that an offspring of the woman will one day come. And while harmed by the evil one, the offspring will ultimately strike a death blow to the serpent. So there is this one who will be born who's going to bring relief from death's curse. Hope is given. A child will be born who defeats the serpent. And so, and so what seems to be an abrupt end to the good created world that God made is not an end of the world, but it's the beginning actually of redemption hope. Because this is what the God who speaks light into darkness does. He brings hope when all seems lost. And so what's next? Well, Genesis 4, things are very hopeful. Things are very hopeful. God promised a son would be born to the woman, that son who will rescue from evil. And we read in Genesis 4 that Eve actually has two sons. Wonderful. Cain and Abel are born. God had promised a son will be born. Eve has two sons. Which one of them will be the one we, we, that we're waiting for? Wouldn't that be the question going through Adam and Eve's mind? Which one of these sons is going to be the one? God said, here they are. Which one's going to be the one to rescue us from all this? But as it turns out, while Abel worships God in a way that pleases God, Cain is much more aligned with the serpent's death works than the serpent's defeat. And out of jealousy, Cain kills his brother. So Abel's dead. He can't be the one to bring relief. And Cain, Cain's clearly oriented against God uh, entirely. And, 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 and so what will happen now? For, for Cain's sin, what will, what will take place? Well, God judges him. God comes again and speaks to Cain, but God judges Cain. He sends him off to live a life that's wandering. Aimless wandering. But even in that, the Hebrew of Genesis 4 tells us that Cain went and sat down in the land of Nod. Instead of obeying God, even as God is gracious to secure Cain from the vengeance of those who may seek revenge because of Abel's death. As God extends that grace to him, gives him that mark that's going to preserve him, whatever that is. In that, Cain still rejects God's directives. God says, wander. What does Cain do? He goes and he sits down in the land of Nod. Because grace compels obedience, but not for those who are intent on ignoring God's kindness. And Cain's offspring in Genesis 4, they proved to be just as far or farther from God uh, than, than Cain himself was. Not too down the far down the family line, we meet, the, meet this character Lamech, and instead of God's design for marriage right, out of, right away, we see Lamech takes two wives. And then instead of God's promotion of life, Lamech murders a man and then brags about it. And in fact, the, the, the sadness is deep because he doesn't just brag about it, but he sings a song about it. The first song in the Bible is Adam singing about God's wonderful gift of a wife for him. The second song in the Bible is a song about murder. On the other side of sin, we see how dark things have become. In fact, they only seem to be getting worse because we get to almost the end of Genesis 4 and it's interesting how lost it can all seem. Now, now not all the good is gone. We can, we can note that. Lamech's sons, they're actually very creative. They're, they're inventors of musical instruments and metalworking and ranching. Right? So, so humanity continues to bear the image of God which, though tainted, still expresses itself in creative and industrious ways. That, that exists, but hope does seem very lost near the end of chapter 4. Can you imagine Adam and Eve at this time looking around and what are they saying? Well, Abel's dead and Cain's gone from the presence of God and his family is clearly aligned with death. Everything seems lost. And then we can be honest and say the same thing as we look at the world around us still on the other side of sin. 
We consider all that's going on in the world around us, the weightiness of everything, and it is a very honest observation for us to look out and see that sin enters and sin God ways of God's ways that can be jealousy and all the conscience and determined defiling of God ways of God's ways that can be so prevalent. All of this is very present around us and it weighs us down. A world in sin is a world that's dying and we feel this. Just like Genesis chapter 4, Adam and Eve would have felt it as they looked out. We look out and feel the same thing. How many shootings have there been in our city this year? A world in sin is a world that's lost and dying. It all seems hopeless. But we know, don't we, that it's not hopeless. Because we get to the very end of chapter 4 and what do we read? Well, Adam was intimate with his wife again and she gave birth to a son named Seth. For she said, God has given me another offspring in place of Abel since Cain killed him. A son was born to Seth also, and he named him Enosh. At that time, people began to call on the name of the Lord. God is a promise-keeping God, and another son is born. Enosh is born. And in Enosh's family line, we find worshipers of the living God, that the hope for an offspring who will defeat evil, it lives on just as history goes on. So we get into Genesis 5. And Genesis chapter 5 is a chapter marked by the effects of sin, uh, in, in such a profound way, where we're given a genealogy of Adam's family line in Genesis chapter 5 and 1 after another. We're told a person was born, they have children, they live to a certain age, and then instead of extending on into flourishing eternity, instead they die, they die, they die, they die, they die. It's the refrain of Genesis 5. But then, in those un unrelenting generations of death, there's also that character Enoch. Enoch walked with God, and he was not, for God took him. The text tells us. So even though death has a, a generational grip on all humanity, God still reaches in and overpowers death. Enoch was taken out of the world into the presence of God. Death is powerful. We know that from the first chapters of Genesis. Death is the curse of the sin uh, of sin. In so many ways, death seems to win. It seems to win at personal levels in our life. It seems to win at, 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 at levels all across uh, humanity's life cycle as we see. Death seems to constantly win, but the, but the message that continues to come through the book of Genesis is death is never the final word. It is never the final word. And he died and he died and he died. But in the midst of that death, there is still one who is more powerful, who reaches in, and Enoch was no more, for God took him. Death does not have almighty power. And in the end of chapter 5, that genealogy, we actually meet another Lamech. We meet a different Lamech this time. Now, not the Lamech of Cain's family line who was so wicked, but the Lamech of Enosh's family line, the line of hope. And Lamech has a son named Noah. And Lamech's got some insight into the uniqueness of his boy. He's still holding on to that hope first promised to Eve because what does Lamech say about his boy Noah? He says, out of the ground that the Lord has cursed, this one shall bring us relief. Is Noah going to be the son who will rescue us from evil? Do you feel the anticipation building in the biblical narrative? Is he going to be the one? Where's this promised son? Maybe Noah's the guy. And Noah was unique. And we get into Genesis 6. Sin is all around all the more. It's even worse now in Genesis, Genesis 6. We read there that, that every inclination of the human heart was only evil continually. As comprehensive a statement as possible about the sinfulness of the human heart. But in that evil world, there is Noah. And now the refrain of Noah's life is one of obedience. God speaks, and what does Noah do? Noah obeys. 
Noah obeys, Noah obeys. And God told Noah that he was going to flood the earth because it was so wicked. Judgment is going to come and all that has the breath of life in it is going to die under this flood. So God says to Noah, build a boat because I'm going to save life through you. I'll spare you and your family. And what did Noah do? Noah obeyed. Noah built a boat because through the obedience of one man, God was going to save the human race. Sound familiar? This is how God works. Through the obedience of one man, the human race would be saved. God told Noah to build a boat. Noah obeyed, and the day of judgment came. And God told Noah to gather pairs of animals, male and female, and also to gather his own family, and Noah obeyed. And onto the ark they went. In fact, on they went in decreation order in Genesis 7, 13, and 14. When God created the world, it was birds, beasts and crawling things, and then man. When they got on the boat, it was man beasts and crawling things, and then birds. The sin of humanity had brought about the judgment of decreation, life going backwards out of the world God made as the springs of the earth and the skies opened and tohu vavohu chaos of primordial waters returned and life perished in the flood. Except for Noah and those who were with him. Because for them, the Lord shut them in from the raging waters and preserved them through that ark, through the obedience of one man. The human race was saved. Maybe Noah's the guy. Well, time passes and the flood subsides. Noah and his family, they get off the boat. God makes a covenant with Noah. Uh, he provides Noah with directives for, for caring for the world that he, that he had made. Now as Noah's out to Begin his life of obedience under God again. God tells him, tells him, spread out over the whole earth and multiply on it. And God makes a promise he won't ever again destroy the world with a flood. And he seals that covenantal promise with a rainbow in the sky. And so Noah and his family, they begin to work just like God called them to. But then in Genesis 9, we read how Noah got drunk and fell asleep. And he was shamed in his nakedness by one of his sons. And he woke up to curse the son who shamed him, is Noah the guy who's going to bring ultimate relief. No, Noah's not the guy. In fact, instead of the promised offspring of the woman who would bring relief from evil, Noah's not much different than Adam himself. Like Adam, Noah indulged in the fruit of the vine. Noah was shamed in his nakedness, and the family line of Noah was cursed. Noah's not the guy. Noah's just Adam repeating all over again. But the world goes on. Remember how God had told Noah and his family to be fruitful and multiply and spread out over the whole earth. And that begins, but as time goes by, they decide, instead of spreading out over the whole earth like God called us to, instead, wouldn't it be better to gather in one place and build a tower in order to make a name for ourselves, the text says. That's what we'll do. God says spread out and humanity centralizes and, and, and builds a tower of pride and rebellion, a monument to their own hubris. Isn't that just like humanity in our pride? To, to, to gather and make a name for ourselves. Ignore the directives of God. Let me make a name for me. Look at us in all our prowess. Aren't we wonderful? What we know is best, we go our own way. Look at our big tower. Everybody's going to know how great we are. And how does that usually go? Well, it usually goes terribly. Because to live out of pride and hubris is to end in futility and wasted labor. So at Babel, uh, humanity gathers to make a name for themselves, but they ultimately scatter in Genesis 11. God confuses their language and they scatter. We can't forget, again, the messaging of Genesis all the way through. As bad as things may seem, there is no ultimate disruption of God's plan. 
If he determines humanity will spread, humanity in their proud, arrogant defiance, uh, as, as contrary to God as they may be, if God's will is the spread of humanity, humanity will spread. His purposes will stand. And lost in the futility uh, that pride brings, the people do scatter. And we wonder, where's the son? Where's the one now? Where's this promised one who'd come and rescue us from all this evil? And then from the land of Ur of the Chaldeans, from the descendants of Noah's boy Shem, uh, there was a man called Abram. And God in His purpose called Abram in Genesis 12 and said, Go from your country and your kindred to your, father, and your father's house, to your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. In the shadow of the human pride and failure at Babel where humanity was going to make a name for themselves, God calls to Abraham and He says, Actually, I will make a name for you. And the promise of Adam and Eve lives on. The promise is renewed. There's going to be this offspring now through Abraham, through whom the whole world is going to be blessed. But who will he be? When will he come? The world is dark. Who will be the light of life? The world's proud. Who's going to come who's truly humble of heart? The world is in rebellion. Who's going to come rescue from the judgment sentence of death? Who's going to come and truly obey the will of God? Who will save us from the chaos of our sin? And we feel that narrative tension here, don't we? To make any sense of the book of Samuel, just as we get there, to make any sense of 1 Samuel, this tension needs to be building all the way through the biblical landscape as we, as we arrive in that location. Who's going to be the one? And, and while we want to live with that tension as we go through the narrative, just as the people of God historically lived with this anticipating tension all through, while we want to live with that at the same time, we can't help but say His name, can we? We can't help but say his name. Because that angel appears to Joseph who's engaged to Mary all those generations later. And what, and what does the angel say to Joseph when he comes? He says, you will call his name Jesus. Why? Does the angel focus on the kingship of Jesus? Does the angel focus on the priesthood of Jesus? Does the angel focus even on the sacrifice of Jesus? No, what does the angel say? The angel goes all the way back to Genesis 3 and says, you will call his name Jesus. Why? Because he will save his people from their sin. From their sin. The problem we've had from the very beginning, the fact that humanity has gone against God and we need this one who we've been waiting for all down through the historical ages. Here's the one who's come. Jesus is here. And while we feel that narrative tension and longing for him in the biblical text, we continue to feel that tension in our own lives today because while he's come and while he's conquered sin and death ultimately through his cross and resurrection, we still feel the tension that's present there and longing for his return to truly set things right because we are still in this world of chaos. It's no wonder that John can get to the end of Revelation after he has the curtain pulled back and a heavenly view of history and all that's going on. And what is his final longing at the end of Revelation? It's not, his final word is not, thank you for coming, Lord Jesus, but it's come, Lord Jesus. 
We still need you. You've come. You've paid the price. You've done the work. It is finished in that sense. And at the same time, we still have this longing. And that longing is cultivated from all the way back at the history of humanity. He's the light that comes into darkness. Jesus is the life who comes into chaos. Through the obedience of one man, humanity is truly saved. Jesus is the promised offspring who's done the work. We trust in him completely. And here we continue to wait. We know him and we wait. We know him. And we wait. And in that tension, we don't find ourselves in the discouraged position of being separated or isolated from the hope of God. But we actually feel ourselves to be living with a tension, although more fulfilled in promise-keeping power. We feel ourselves in the same tension the people of God have always felt themselves. You notice Adam at the end of the narrative. What does he say? Well, he's already named Eve. He's already named his wife. He's called her Isha, which is the Hebrew word for woman. But at the end of that long interaction with God where he's speaking to them, Adam renames his wife. He renames her Eve, which is the Hebrew word for life. Why does he do that? Because he's trusting in the fact that through God's promise, life is not over, but life will be eternally provided. And like and like that, we find ourselves in the similar place where we're trusting in Jesus, recognizing that life comes through him, and we still live with the tension of waiting. He's the promised one. And all the scriptures direct us to this anticipation of his final and climactic return. And so we're thankful for this narrative. It helps orient us in days that are so disorienting. When then the horizontal and the secular seem to matter so much more. We can be reoriented by the sacred and the future promise and the realities that history is God's history. Truth is God's truth. And things are going forward no matter what it may seem. Things are going forward exactly according to his design. And we will all Bend the knee to the sun. And for that we're thankful. Let's pray. So Father, we pray we'd be encouraged by this truth this morning. Uh, give us eyes to see uh, Jesus and His accomplishment. Help us as we study the Old Testament to see Him plainly here. Anticipate Him well and long uh, for not just the work that He's done and finished to be applied to our hearts. We need that, O oh Lord. Apply the work of Christ on His cross to our heart. And Father, in that, we still long for His return. And so give us the hope we need, the persevering power we require. We long to see Jesus for who He is. In His name we pray. Amen.